Oh, hey there, Twitter. It's Thursday, which means it's almost the weekend, and today we have a great show for you. We'll be talking about how Uber is going to kick off riders who have a low rating, Mueller's public statement, and Louisiana's bill to restrict abortions. So hang out right there, and we'll see you on the timeline. Yes. <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, and she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Let's start off with some fun news from our friend Uber. CBS tweeted, Uber riders with a habit of being rude to drivers or otherwise acting like a jerk could soon find themselves barred from using the service. And Dan Liu tweeted, one thing I liked Uber about Uber was that unlike cabs, they won't regularly refuse to take you to the bad neighborhoods. But this new policy seems like a reversal. They'll now ban riders who regularly take trips to bad neighborhoods. So, this is stunning. I feel like Uber's now become the teacher and they're grading us on a test that we haven't even studied for. For real. Like, why are we getting banned from an app because of one person's opinion out of us? This seems inherently bad. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things here is that this seems like such a subjective rating system, yeah. right? You can get up to five stars. Maybe sometimes you get four stars. But, like, you're beholden to someone's kind of personal opinion about yeah. how things went and then you can't use it. And we know that job discrimination or just discrimination in general is very <laughs> rampant right now. I mean, people will not order a firm black cashiers or they won't do other things when it's a person of color that they don't like or even a gender that they don't feel comfortable with. So to say, hey, we're going to not deal with like systemic racism and uh, misogyny, but give you this rating system to where you can be kicked off for someone's own personal bias is not very thoughtful, yes, I don't no, think. That's, that's deeply worrisome. Um, I, one thing I will say is that, you know, I, I can see the perspective of these drivers for who sure. are subject sometimes to people who can really exploit their labor. Um, I've definitely been in shared cars before mm. where, you know, there have been riders who've been like belligerently drunk and they've gotten in and kind of threatened everyone's safety. Mm -hmm. So on the other hand, it could be yeah. Uh, at least the start of a system to hold yeah. people accountable. For sure, and I hope they do roll out like a campaign to tell us what is good behavior, what's not bad, what's not good behavior. Um, but I think they should have some leniency, which they're saying they are, they are. They will alert you if you are about to get kicked off, and they'll give you tips on how to change that uh, behavior <laughs> so you don't have to get put in Uber jail. I, I would like to somebody call you and they're like, you haven't been doing so great on Uber. <laughs> like, We're gonna give you some tips and tricks to do better. They're like, so Alex, we've had three reports that you don't wear deodorant. And we <laughs> Are, Alex wears deodorant, by the way. She wears deodorant. Thank you. But I'm just saying. <laughs> but just in case. Just in case. Just in case you're yeah. going to do this. And you know, the drivers are being held to an even higher standard. Mm. Business Insider is reporting that a driver now has to have at least a 4.6 at least to keep their jobs. Wow. A 4.6. What's your score in this app? Okay, well, I am happy to tell you that I would at least make the cut there. I'm okay. a 4.73. Shut up. What I'm a 4.73. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Actually, I'm relieved that we have the same exact rating really? because if you had like a 4.95 or something like that, I would be like, oh my God, like what you am I what? doing? What is not good enough? I mean, I'm mad yeah. that I have a 4.73. I'm like, where's my five? I deserve a five, Uber. I'm you think you, you, give a, you give a five? No, I totally don't. Give a five. <laughs> my friends are the worst at doing at getting in the Uber and I think they lower my rating. You have those loud friends that get in and they're like, girl, you got the Uber. Oh, like, yeah. Yes, they get in and they're like, I'm bringing my drink with me. I'm bringing my loud friend that you don't know. And you're like, come Come on, guys. This is my ride. What are yeah. you doing? So, anyway, let's take it to the timeline. Will forcing passengers to be potentially nicer to drivers help Uber? Or will everyone just run over to Lyft? Tweet us with the hashtag AM to DM. Well, on to a different story. Sanjana Corinth tweeted, Louisiana passes bill banning abortion at first sign of fetal heartbeat, usually at around six weeks before many women even realize they're pregnant. No exceptions for rape and incest. The governor, a Democrat, has said he will sign the bill when it reaches his desk. 
Jamil Smith tweeted, Louisiana's governor wants to sign the state's new bill banning abortion after only six weeks of pregnancy. He's a Democrat. So is the woman who sponsored the bill. This is what the party gets for welcoming in folks willing to force births to stay elected. So Alex, you have been reporting on this topic for a while. Is yeah. this decision surprising right now? Did we see this coming? Yeah, so for this particular governor, he has said previously that he is pro-life. So this is, of course, consistent with uh, his point of view. It may come as a surprise to some people oh. that you know there were over a dozen Democrats who did uh, vote to back this bill. So yeah. I think that speaks to the fact that uh, you know there hasn't been a hard line in the sand yeah. for Democrats and when I, it comes to this issue. And I think it's surprising because I didn't know there were Democrats out there leading major states that were pro-abortion. I thought there was a party line, but I guess there isn't one. It is not an issue that you need to choose a side like LGBT rights. That is something that every Democrat right now does support. But abortion rights doesn't look like that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think it's important to actually get into some of the uh, specifics of this bill as yes. well, um, just because there are some things that definitely raise red flags. Uh, for instance, there is that piece that there are no exceptions for rape or incest. Mm. Uh, that was also similar to the Alabama ban. Uh, that is, you know, some of the most extreme legislating on the procedure. And also, it says it'll criminalize doctors uh, for violating this as well. They could face up to two years in prison or a fine. So those are just some really chilling aspects of this that punish people. Which is crazy because these doctors then can cross a state line and be arrested in one place, but in the other place be completely protected. I feel like this sends the whole medical uh, system in a tailspin of like, what's right, what's wrong? What are they even teaching them in medical school now? Yeah, and I mean, you know, to that point, a lot of critics will say about these bills that they aren't based on medical science. Mm, uh, You know, they aren't actually based on healthcare. And, you know, with this six-week window, uh, in my own reporting, I've talked to so many individuals who didn't even know that they were pregnant until much later. So critics will say this is essentially operating as an all-out ban on this healthcare procedure uh, because people just don't even know they're pregnant then. That's crazy. And this seems to be happening every day that we are talking about it, we're reading about it. But as you've been reporting, this is not new. It's just yeah. something we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something we're talking about. You know, we're seeing uh, a lot of these bans pass uh, and, you know, get a higher profile. We're seeing, uh, you know, other abortion clinics being shuttered. Of course, we covered what's happening in Missouri yes. uh, yesterday. And the reality is that actually these bans don't match public opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pew has reported that six in 10 Americans believe that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. So, uh, in fact, these often represent a more extreme uh, group uh, who's trying to pass this kind of legislation. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there's going to be many more coming. Uh, Yeah, and you know, we will definitely be keeping an eye on all of these bans. We're going to go on to some Twitter news now. Uh, Joseph Cox tweeted yesterday, new, an executive told us that Twitter is now conducting a study on whether white supremacists or nationalist accounts belong on Twitter, working with academics. Quote, is it the right approach to deplatform these individuals? Is it the right approach to try and engage? Dot, dot, dot. Parker Malloy tweeted, the people at Twitter are so afraid of upsetting people on the right that they'll make up all sorts of excuses to avoid enforcing their existing rules. White supremacist harassment is already against the platform's rules. They just don't enforce it. Joining us today is Joseph Cox, who is one of the two reporters to report on the latest adventure for Twitter. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So let's dive in. What do we know about this research study so far? Yeah, so Twitter is basically asking some sort of fundamental questions, as you mentioned, on whether white supremacists and nationalists as well, uh, of course, they're sort of two sides of the same ideological coin, but whether they belong on Twitter. So Facebook recently banned white nationalism um, after our own investigation. So if you even exhibit any support or representation of that ideology, you're going to get banned. Twitter 
does it in a very different way. They may, you know, limit replies or they may hide certain replies. And now they're doing this research to figure out, hey, should we ban them? Should we be more aggressive in our approach or something like that? So it is, of course, good to see that they are um, doing some empirical research, but plenty of people we spoke to said it's a little bit too late. Okay, so you mentioned that the people you spoke with said it is a little too late for this. Of course, Twitter's CEO Jack Dorsey met with President Trump a couple of weeks ago. Is this research related at all to that meeting? Uh, not as far as we know. Uh, I would say that we just can't say right now. I mean, the executive that spoke to us was also in that meeting. Um, but I feel like this is probably more of a more general shift, not just in Twitter, but obviously in the tech companies more generally in the social media platforms. As I mentioned, with Facebook changing their policy, there is kind of a moment now where social giants are coming to the point where we do have to deal with these ideologies that we have left to sort of blossom. Uh, on our platform. So I think it's part of like, that wider context. Gotcha. And you said that we have to deal with the fact that they are blossoming on our platforms. And in your reporting, you stated that Twitter is looking at making or considering that white nationalism be a debatable topic. Can you talk to us about what debatable means when we're talking about such, you know, hateful speech? Yeah. So whereas Facebook may be more binary, uh, you know, we ban them or we don't ban them. Twitter is a lot more multifaceted. And we think this comes from its philosophical approach that's kind of always been there. It seems that we are an open platform. We are a transparent platform. Um, so rather than just banning accounts, they believe that if there are more people and more voices, you may actually be able to have some counter speech to that as well. And that's one of the questions that they're trying to answer. Like, is it actually effective to ban them and they'll just go somewhere else? Or if we allow those viewpoints to actually remain on the platform, can they be counteracted by you know good speech, whatever that may be? Uh, of course, whether that's actually going to be effective is another question this research is going to have to answer. And again, some of the researchers we spoke to were skeptical of that because of the way the Twitter is engineered, if you're going to provide counter speech, you kind of have to have an argument in good faith. And as we all know, that's not necessarily the case with certain um, Twitter debates and especially around such um, virulent content as this. What policies are already in place to reprimand uh, white supremacists and white nationalists on Twitter? I mean, so if you're a member of a organized hate group, um, you're probably going to be removed, or at least you should be under the policies, especially if you're part of an organized violent group as well. Um, so Twitter should presumably ban people after that, uh, under that policy. It's not so much where it differs from other platforms that if you say, I'm a proud white nationalist, that will get you banned on Facebook. That ostensibly will not get you banned on Twitter because you're not explicitly or officially part of some sort of violent hate group. They are falling back or at least emphasizing that sort of membership um, as a prerequisite for um, getting banned. Gotcha. And Joseph, how does this fit into the larger efforts of Twitter to be nicer? We're seeing a lot from the organization to make Twitter a fun place for people and not just something that's always kind of a dumpster fire. Yeah, I mean, that also touches on some reporting from BuzzFeed News previously as well. Twitter is focusing on the health of the platform a lot more now. For everyone we've spoken to at the company, it seems to be a top priority at the moment. As for what that means, it kind of goes back to this idea of that we may not just ban people, we may do certain tricks like hiding replies or something like that. Uh, and that is what, at least the health of Twitter, is what was brought up in that meeting with Trump. And that will come, you know, that will touch on white nationalism, white supremacy, that may touch on a proliferation of misinformation. It's such a broad topic that um, Twitter does have its work cut out, but academics we spoke to said that it is good that the platform is trying to um, 
tackle these problems, albeit somewhat late. Gotcha. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really helpful to hear from you in your reporting, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Today, we've got a great show for you. Coming up, I will sit down with a childhood icon of mine, Kel Mitchell, and we will go live from the district to talk with talk Mueller's farewell speech. But up next is Fire Tweets. So many things happening. So, so many things. So many things. Welcome back. It is time for fire tweets. But of course, before we get to them, I want to read some of your reactions to uh, our little conversation about Uber. Jolie, you tweeted, whoever gets their drivers to stop hanging dozens of little tree fresheners in their cars first has my devotion. Amen. They never smell that great. No, like, not what, at all. I don't know who picks them out. It's like, this is worth the 50 cents to smell terrible. I know. I'm always like, as soon as it smells like that, I'm like, I'm going to get ahead. You're like, this I'm is, gonna, this is going in my review, me. which means yes. Uber will now ban us for being mean. <laughs> Mean about air fresheners. You have to be nice about air fresheners, Alex. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's go to fire tweets (laughs) now. John, you tweet it. (laughs) Date, you shouldn't be using a straw. Me, I know, I know. It's bad for the environment. Date, it's just a weird way to eat spaghetti. Okay, can you eat spaghetti with a straw? I don't want to know if you can eat spaghetti with a straw. I think this is so gross. Like, what are you doing? I would eat a meatless spaghetti with a straw, if possible. It's very convenient. It's very, like, lady in the tramp, but alone and single. Um, okay, well, spaghetti is already in a form that allows you to slurp it. So, truly, like, if you do this on your own time, I'm good. I don't want to know. Don't send me photos. I I never want to speak of this again. All right, next tweet. (laughs) Talon, you tweeted, me starving with food right in front of me, but waiting for Netflix to load so I can eat while I watch my show. Yeah. It, it me. I, I have let many of plates of food go cold as I try to figure out <laughs> what to watch. Because my problem is I'll bring the food home and I'm like, oh, we're going to watch Netflix. And you're like, what is there to watch? I have to say, like, some entire nights I'll spend just clicking through the queue of yeah. like, trying to find something. And then you're like, 45 minutes is gone. I'm yeah. really especially hungry now and I still have nothing to watch. Yeah, and I also don't trust those match meters. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, 98% yeah. match with this thing. And I start watching. I'm like, who am I? Who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? <laughs> this is algorithm. Yeah. Caring about me. Anyway, so Fernando, you're, <laughs> you're really thinking about sorry, sorry, that. Sorry, you're like, really, what oh, does? What does? Okay. Anyway, Netflix let's move on. All right, moving next on to Netflix. Next okay. Next up, we got a tweet from Fernando. <laughs> this guy just proposed to his girlfriend as she got off the plane. That was cute and all, but I need to claim my bag. So I would apply this to all other forms of disrupting the public. You know, (laughs) birthday songs at restaurants. I was at a restaurant last night. There was about five birthday songs and it was blocking the kitchen. And I was like, there's my pasta. You're like, I would really like to eat my meal. I love this gif of Rihanna just like, you know, push people out of the way. It's like a total mood. Let me off this plane. Like, let me get my stuff. Let me get my meal. But there's something about being trapped on a plane trying to get off that like, feels more anxiety-inducing. Oh, yeah. Because I think you feel the whole plane is trying to, like, rush, and you have these people like, I love you forever. And you're like, I would love to get off this back. Also, like, not a romantic place. <laughs> yeah, no. Anyways, next tweet. Oh, DBMC, you tweeted, Rihanna put up the professional LinkedIn headshot as her profile picture. We ain't never getting music again. 
And to be honest, let this woman live. <laughs> She's about to have a job no other person has ever had in the history of the world, running a major luxury yeah. house. If she wants to put a LinkedIn photo up, do it, girl. Yeah, you know, I have to say that uh, I'm in the same camp as you. Mm-hmm. Rihanna can do no wrong no. in my book. So I'm like, I will love and praise whatever photo you put up. And yeah. that's just the end of the story for me. Amen, amen. Yeah. All right, let's go to the treat of the day. Let's Ready? Boom. Uh, which comes from Sweaty Harry. <laughs> just found out Jack Johnson is a real person and not just a term for any white guy who plays <laughs> acoustic guitar. I'm also today years old that I learned that Jack Johnson is a singular person. Uh, I too learned this. So <laughs> next time I see John Mayer, I won't walk up to him and say, you Jack Johnson. <laughs> oh my God, John Mayer is going to be so I know, mad. would not be pleased. We'll have would not be there. pleased. Oh okay. my God. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, coming up, Zach is sitting down with actor and comedian Kel Mitchell, but up next, we are going live from the district. Please don't. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill correspondent Paul McLeod. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Hi, Paul. It's so good to see you again. Um, so we're going to go for the tweet from... Always happy to oh, talk to you guys. You know, I'm still learning this delay, Paul, so you can prepare for that. I forget that you're a little behind on me. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to go with a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Mueller's public remarks on Wednesday kicked off a new surge of Democrats calling for impeachment proceedings to begin against President Trump. Paul, we've heard of Democrats calling for impeachment for some time now, but what changed yesterday after Mueller's remarks? So I think, I mean, in some ways, what Mueller said yesterday was not necessarily new. I mean, he, he reiterated that if he could have uh, cleared the president of obstruction of justice, he would have, and they did not come to that conclusion. I saw a lot of people reacting to that yesterday, but I mean, that's one of the main conclusions of the Mueller report. We already knew that. I think what really made a difference was him spelling out that in his interpretation, he could not have made a verdict of guilt or innocence about a sitting president, and that that is the role of Congress. And as such, he did not even uh, endeavor to entertain that question. He did not even uh, uh, go into this with the mindset of like, well, maybe we can find the president guilty and then we'll kick it to Congress to do something about it. It was, no, 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 this is not my role to make a determination here. And it would have been unfair for me to have said the president was uh, innocent or guilty, or well, it would have been unfair to say the president was guilty because we could not charge him. So. A lot of people took that to mean, well, if Mueller is saying this is not his job and that there is another constitutional role for that course of action, I mean, that clearly kicks it to Congress. And we've seen a lot of, in particular, uh, presidential contenders now saying, well, I mean, that's a referral. So this is on us to do our jobs now to open up cons- uh, I'm sorry, impeachment proceedings and at least start to investigate whether or not articles of impeachment should be drawn up. So you mentioned that uh, some of the 2020 candidates are saying we should open up this investigation. Um, where does Nancy Pelosi stand on this now? Has this changed her point of view at so, all? Yeah, Pelosi is uh, in a very tricky situation because, I mean, her, one of her main jobs is getting and keeping her people elected. And very clearly, her and the rest of House leadership has been very skittish about the idea of impeachment proceedings for a number of reasons. I mean, one, uh, let's pull back and remember the the actual chances of impeach successfully impeaching Donald Trump to the point where he would be removed from office are uh, astronomically low because Republicans still control the Senate. There hasn't been a single Senate Republican who's come out in favor of impeachment. So from Pelosi's point of view, it's like, all right, well, if we're going to go through this and there's no hope of actual success, why are we shooting ourselves in the foot like this? Because they see a lot of 
danger. They're very worried about how it would play to middle-of-the-road voters. Uh, we know and we've already seen that Trump and other Republicans would portray this as a coup, uh, as some sort of unjust attempt to seize power as revenge for the 2016 election. And Nancy Pelosi just doesn't want that headache. So she has been trying to push back on these ambitions in her own caucus to say, look, we let's take this step by step. We are not at the level of impeachment proceedings yet. We have multiple oversight committees that are fighting in the courts for information from the White House. Let's just stay the course, just one step ahead of the other. Uh, and that has worked so far, but it's these voices are just growing and growing. We already know there are dozens of members in the House who are calling for impeachment. And the weird thing is that in response, Pelosi has had to ratchet up her own rhetoric uh, to sort of appease them. I mean, she's already basically on the record saying Trump has committed a cover-up, uh, other senior Democrats saying he's committed a crime. So at a certain point, you were kind of backed yourself into a corner of, well, if the president's committed a crime and a cover-up, isn't it Congress's responsibility to do something about it? Mm, that, yeah, that would make sense. So how are the 2020 Democratic candidates responding to this news? Do we see them changing their messaging at all as more folks are coming out for impeachment? Yeah, um, so the it started with a bit of a trickle. I mean, certainly Democratic 2020 presidential candidates have been more likely than the average elected Democratic population to call for impeachment proceedings to begin. Um, I mean, frankly, it's easy for them to do this because they're trying to win the nomination, they're trying to win the White House, and they would never have to actually follow up on this because by the time that this actually happened, uh, you know, Trump, in theory, would no longer be in office. So it's an easy, easy thing to say to for a person who is trying to win over a group of, you know, Democrat, the Democratic uh, Party-based voters uh, to win this nomination. Now, that said, there are a lot of people who uh, initially did not want to go that far. And we've seen people move towards the impeachment end of the spectrum. Uh, Bernie Sanders was a little bit wishy-washy and has now basically said it's time. Uh, Kristen Gillibrand, a um, senator from New York, who just weeks ago was saying, look, Nancy Pelosi's course uh, seems to be the smart one, is now saying, look, it is time to start impeachment proceedings. So outside of some outliers, like Joe Biden notably, uh, most of the Democratic contenders for president, or at least certainly the ones who are in Congress, uh, are now saying it is time to start impeachment proceedings. Whew. All right, well, I guess only time will tell. But uh, on to another story. Here's a tweet from the Wall Street Journal's Rebecca Ballhouse. The White House wanted to, the USS John McCain, quote, out of sight for Trump's visit to Japan, a tarp was hung over the ship's name of the trip, of the trip, and sailors who wear caps bearing the ship's name were given the day off for Trump's visit. And here's another tweet from Adam Weinstein. It's not even named after that John McCain, all caps. Paul, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, so it looks like some uh, White House staffers were concerned maybe that the president would be angered when he went for this press conference and saw the name John McCain on a ship nearby and tried to head off this reaction uh, by, initially they called for the ship to be moved. It turned out that wasn't really feasible because it had had a collision, uh, I believe in 2017. So it wasn't, it would, would have been a massive hassle to move this ship. So they decided instead, well, we'll, um, we'll cover up the name and we'll, we'll throw some tarps over the name and we'll, anyone who, uh, is identifiable from the ship, will give them the day off, and went through this uh, frankly absurd rigmarole just to prevent 
<laughs> Donald Trump from seeing the words John McCain, and I guess the idea was uh, worrying that this would anger him. So, I mean, just to catch anyone up who, who might have missed this, uh, you know, Senator John McCain, who died last year, uh, and Donald Trump had a very acrimonious relationship. Uh, McCain uh, sort of went down as the one, even though there were three of them, but he sort of went down as the one who famously killed Trump's Obamacare repeal hopes, and he... to basically the day he died remained a Republican critic of Donald Trump. And Trump has, you know, fairly clearly still held a grudge. Uh, as you note, it is funny that, I mean, technically the ship isn't even named after him. It was initially named after John McCain's father and grandfather, who were both Navy admiral, admirals, so his name has sort of been added to the, the list of John McCain's that this ship has paid a tribute to. Um, I don't know what else more to say other than that, that <laughs> this is just one of the most ridiculous I mean, stories, which is saying something because the bar is already pretty high. But uh, them just being afraid that the president would be angered by a ship. I have not really been able to stop laughing about this. Yeah. Well, a new day, a new level of petty. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. All right, great talking with you. Have a good one. And up next, I'm talking to the star of the AMC series, Nosferatu, Ashley Cummings. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm excited to be joined by the star of the upcoming AMC series, Nosferatu, Ashley Cummings. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And serving a look, if I may say so myself. Thanks kindly. Can't take any credit for it. <laughs> My stylist, Laura Jones, uh, hair and makeup team, all eco-friendly and ethical. 100%. Love it. Love it. Well, listen, I want to uh, get into this show. Um, for about the past decade, maybe even longer, vampire storylines have really gripped pop culture. Right. Um, but how is Nosferatu a departure from, uh, you know, what we might understand as the standard sci-fi vampire right. show? Well, I mean, firstly, Zach Quinto plays the vampire, uh, but our vampire doesn't suck blood in the kind of stereotypical trope of, of the word. He, he sucks energy via a wraith, a Rolls-Royce wraith, oh. um, by, by kidnapping children and revitalizing himself by sucking the energy out of these, these young, innocent souls. So, um, that, and it's also kind of a metaphor for, um, you know, the patriarchy or misogyny and so on. It's, it's kind of deeply rooted in larger meanings um, and it has a very gritty family drama beneath it all. Well, I love that you mentioned that, uh, you know, it is this trope for the patriarchy. Right. Um, and speaking of which, your character, she may not be who you expect to uh, kind mm -hmm. of fight off the forces of evil. She has supernatural powers in her own right. Mm -hmm. She's like riding around on a motorbike. Yeah. Um, what <laughs> made you gravitate towards her? Well, I think, I, I mean, it's extraordinary to see a, a young, strong woman taking on um, a, a man like Charlie Manx, who, who does kind of represent uh, misogynistic kind of traits and so on. And um, But the other aspect of her is, is that she kind of has all of these beautiful qualities about her. She has this huge heart and immense mm. creativity and an, a wilderness of emotion. And it's these superpowers and not just strength and emotional robustness. Like, you know, she's not fearless. She's fearful, but she shows up anyway. So I think it was that combination of these kind of masculine and feminine traits that were really attractive to me. Hmm. Well, Nosferatu is based on a book. Yeah. Uh, you, of course, have another project based on a book yes. that's coming out, The Goldfinch. When you're working on these kinds of projects that already are based on a work that may already have a fan base, is that difficult to navigate? Is that something that you're already thinking about? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was fan a fan of both of these um, these books. I thought the writers were geniuses, and it's always terrifying kind of taking it on because I have an expectation of myself. You know, I want to respect and honor the material and the characters mm. that already exist. Um, but I think I've actually done quite a few adaptations, and you learn early on that it's a new medium. Therefore, it has its own life. We have to take the story honor the heart of it, but utilize different mechanisms to shed light on these issues. And um, so it's just, it's a completely different world and you're not going to satisfy anyone, but you just have mm. to navigate your way through it mm. the best you can. Well, you mentioned some of the incredible characters. Um, of, course the, of course, the Goldfinch has a really star-studded yeah. cast. Um, what was it like to work with Jeffrey Wright and Ansel Elgort? They were such beautiful humans, my goodness. Um, just personally and professionally, I, I loved um, and admire both of them. But, um, you know, they're, they're very down to earth and, and you just kind of, you, you don't really think about them as stars as such. They're just another human that you get to play and work with. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, uh, speaking of Ansel Elgort, uh, he recently made some news with his uh, selfies on Instagram. Oh, I and heard about yes. yesterday. Someone mentioned <laughs> Well, you have your own uh, Instagram news, so to speak. Um, I want to know if your bio is true. Yes. I 100% like, got hacked, hacked, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I was um, filming Nosferatu, and my boyfriend and I were kind of, we were sitting by this lake and suddenly realized that um, I couldn't access, like, my email and some other aspect, like my social media and stuff. And we had this war with whoever, Randy, my hacker. Um, Randy, yeah, your hacker. Randy. It's like, you know, your buddy Randy. My old pal Randy. Um, he's a great guy. Didn't do too much harm, you know. He had access to all my emails, and he just, you know, changed my profile picture to a tiger, which I was kind of stoked about because I love tigers. So... Um, thanks for that, Randy. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I feel like that is an unusual experience of social media and with hackers. I know. He, know? Was, he was a nice one. Yeah, it's not always the nicest place. And, no. you know, we here are a show <laughs> on Twitter. And you actually, you don't use Twitter. You don't have an account, right? Yeah, I'm really bad at social media. It's Actively terrible. <laughs> I mean, I tried to post that Goldfinch trailer for about, I was doing it for about an hour. I was emailing everyone. Everyone was involved at the hotel. I was like, does anybody know? Does someone know? So yeah, that's not my forte. I'm working on it. Yeah. Well, excellent. <laughs> well, we'll we'll keep an eye on all your social media. Thank you. Yeah. I've got a great publicity team now and they're helping me <laughs> navigate the technologies. Well, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> thank you for having me. And Nosferatu premieres on AMC on June 2nd. Up next, Zach sits down with Kel Mitchell. Uh, <laughs> this is the sit-down, so I'm laughing. Kel has me laughing for it. And I'm here with actor and comedian Kel Mitchell, who is quite funny just by himself sitting here, who is the executive <laughs> producer and star of the upcoming reboot of All That on Nickelodeon. Welcome to AM to DM. Hey, man. Hey, what's happening? I like that music. It's, it's, it's like jazzy. It's jazzy. I listen to it as I get ready in the morning. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have nightmares of it. Thank you so much for coming in. It was Thank funny. You, I told my mom that you're coming in, and she's like, I love him. I would talk, you would talk about him all the time when you were a kid. Oh. And I feel like so many kids have that experience growing up. That's cool. So. You, say hi to your mama. Yeah, say hi. Hi, mom. Well, hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about this reboot. Is it going to yeah. be like what we saw with 
when some of us were mm. growing up and watching Nickelodeon? Or are you changing it a bit? Yeah, man. Uh, well, we have to change it a bit, okay. you know, because it's for a, a whole new generation. But we do know we have a, a built-in fan base. Yes. So we do. Uh, we are doing stuff that the 90s fans are going to love. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the 90s fans have kids, too. So we got to cater to them as well. So we're doing a really good mix. And yeah. so uh, we are coming in a little bit with the OG cast, having some uh, fun with them. Like I do uh, Good Burger, of course. I do Ed. Of course. Uh, with the Jonas Brothers, actually. Really? On, yeah, on June 15th. Oh, my God. Do they yeah, do man. the famous line? What is the famous line again for folks? Oh, see how he made me do that? <laughs> he did a real good. What, what is the line, Kelly? Welcome to the Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Can I take your order? <laughs> it's they that one. They to do that. I was like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> you got to do it. You got to do it. Come well, on. Welcome. I can't do it. Welcome to Good Burger. My voice doesn't go that You got to go like this. <laughs> <laughs> so you have new people like the Jonas Brothers. Were yeah. they fans of the show? They you? were. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're super excited. They Part of their contract, they said that we would perform mm-hmm. as long as we're inside of a Good Burger sketch. Really? Yeah. People <laughs> are really obsessed with that sketch. I was looking yeah. at your Facebook and I saw SZA was yeah. doing line yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Is it something that typically happens? A fellow celebrity comes up and they're like, can I run a line by you? I, I love it when that happens, man. Like I'll be driving and I'll see a celebrity and they're like, man, Good Burger, do welcome to Good Burger. And we'll, we'll take pictures. And I, I love that, man. Yeah. You know, because I'm fans of, of everybody's works I'm too. Sure. Yeah, it man. It must feel nice to have them celebrating you. And oh, yeah. Work. Yeah. It's Speaking awesome. of celebrating other people's work, you and Keenan have been working together forever now. Yeah. What's that relationship been like over the years? <laughs> That's my brother, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have fun together. Uh, we just uh, drove the Good Burger car through New York. Which, really? Yeah, which Recently? was awesome. Yeah, yesterday. Did people, yesterday. Did people freak out over that? They freaked out, yeah. In that Pinto with the burger in the front and everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a blast. Like, we were inside of it. I put it on my Instagram, and we're just, like, screaming and laughing like these little kids. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> in that car, is a little dangerous. It shakes a little bit. Yeah, man. I'm assuming. <laughs> it's a little, a little aged now. Yeah, yeah that car is funny, <laughs> Is it man. even, like, certified to drive anymore? Yeah, <laughs> well, they fixed it up. It looks good. It looks good. It's restored. That's yeah. good. That's good. Did you, did you and Keenan meet in the first casting of the original show? Yeah, we did. Uh, Keenan, they found him in Atlanta, okay. and uh, I was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. It was a nationwide search, man. It was like the Avengers. They were looking for, like, the funniest kids in every city. You know what I mean? Uh, and we all battled it out and uh, got got together, got to be the original seven, man. That's yeah, amazing. yeah. And me and Keenan just became friends. Do you know what I mean? And stayed friends <laughs> since then. Yeah. So you all have replicated that process, though, for this new cast. Tell me about what that nationwide search was like. Yeah, man. We have amazing casting directors. They did exactly the same thing. Uh, these kids, it's seven of them again, uh, all different walks of life. And they're all very, very funny. Mm-hmm. They came in with their own characters, own voices. Uh, they listen very well. So mm-hmm. it's been good to like give them advice and uh, be a mentor for them, yeah. you know, because uh, it, it's awesome to be producing on the show as well because I get to act with them, but then I also get to give them some great advice. Yeah. So, in uh, and, and notes and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, it, it's been great, man. And what, yeah. what, what's some of the advice you've been giving them? Because we know that child actors, yeah. you have a complicated uh, job to do. True. And True. it's a hard job. It's really, yeah. really tough. So, what are the things you're telling them on stage? You know, you, you, you go through it because it happens so fast for you when you're, when you're a kid and uh, it's this new walk. And so, I always tell them have a good sense of who you are and know that you were special when you were born it's yeah. not the show that made you special you're already special and mm-hmm. this is just one part 
of your career, one part of your life. It's going to be a whole bunch of other things that are going to happen. So just enjoy the process and know that it's a team effort. So that way they won't compete with one another or anything like that. That's, yeah. that's really solid. Yeah, man. So what's it like being a father now of a single yeah. show? Because when you began, you were a kid and yeah. you now have your own kids and you're creating content for them. It's it's awesome, man, because I, uh, I have one in college and then I have one that just graduated from high school and then I have one in diapers. Mm-hmm. So uh, wow. it's, it's a range. It, yeah, man. So it's been super, super awesome, man. And then just have my youngest uh, experience it because my oldest have experienced it. But mm-hmm. to have my youngest experience it and be on all that set, it's just it's just so surreal, man. It's awesome. And I love the fact that my kids love the shows. Like, they, they love it and their friends love it. I'm glad I'm on something that their friends like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was funny. My youngest, I thought she wasn't going to notice me. I played Coach Creighton the other okay. day. And I had, like, the black tooth and mm-hmm. the crazy hair. Yeah, and yeah. she was like, Daddy. <laughs> Like, that's daddy playing. She's He's like, playing. I love daddy. Do yeah. they watch your old uh, segments? Of course. Really? Yeah, of course. My kids watch it. And then my oldest son, he like looks just like me. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like some people mistake him for me oh, sometimes. Really? Yeah. It's super like, funny. Kel, what are you doing? Yeah. I'm not killed. My, it's my dad. <laughs> it's funny, man. So I'm assuming they love Good Burger. Are yeah. they excited for the sequel? And can you tell us a bit about what that's going to look like? Yeah, man. Good Burger uh, and all that is, is going to be awesome. Uh, we haven't announced the sequel just yet. That's <laughs> for Good Burger 2. But, but, but there have been talks about it. Okay. There has been talks, talks about okay. Good Burger too. So we're getting, we're getting ready, man. Getting ready. Yes. But you will see a lot of Good Burger into all that. Okay. Yeah, June 15th. June 15th. 15th. Yeah. Very excited for that. Yeah, yeah. So outside of uh, you working as an actor, you mentor a lot of kids around the country. Of course, yeah. Why has that been such a passionate project for you? Uh, it's passionate for me, man. Uh, growing up on the south side of Chicago, uh, I had a lot of programs that helped me out. You know, like being in church. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was part of Boy Scouts. I was in the choir. And then also uh, theater. Theater helped me too. It saved my life. So uh, community theater, ETA, creative arts, yeah, in Chicago. Uh, So I want to do that for the same kids, you know, uh, now, you know, I want to go back and speak to them and uh, motivate them. And it's a lot going on in the world today. And I feel like we need more of that. Uh, People always tell me like, you know, you're always in family entertainment, but I think we need that family entertainment. Like I can go to bed knowing like, okay, I did something uh, that I don't have to worry about when I go to bed at night. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and I, I like putting smiles on people's faces. We need more of that. We need more sure. faces. Everybody smile at home. Yes. <laughs> and will this show... <laughs> <laughs> and will this show... You know, a lot of shows these days are getting quite political due to the circumstances we have yeah. here. And are these young people interested in going there in the show? Um... We don't go too far in there. I mean, we do do things that kids are used to now, like the stuff that they uh, do every day, social media, uh, school, uh, all those interactions that kids have. We poke fun at that. Uh, but we do touch a little bit on it, but you, you just have to wait and see how we do it. Right. Uh, we do it in a fun kid way. I love yeah. that. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Is there going to be f- all the cast from the past uh, version of this on the show at one point? Well, we have Josh Server. Okay. Uh, he's coming in and playing with us. Uh, Lori Beth does Loud Librarian. She's coming in there. All invite information. Uh, and then we're going to have some more surprises. I'm mm-hmm. super excited. Like, we want everybody to come and, and, yeah. and play on the show. I want everybody to get involved in this, you know, because it, it, it has a special place in a lot of people's hearts, and I want everybody there. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's something that, you know, when I knew you were coming in, I was like, you know, I have so many feelings, and I remember so much about the show. So I really yeah. appreciate you doing this and bringing it back you. for us. And yeah. I can watch Nickelodeon and not feel bad about it. That's right. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And you too. And I look too. forward to watching live when it's out. Thank you, So man. thank you so much, Cal. All that premieres on June 15th on Nickelodeon. Up next is Alex talking to Lori Hulse Anderson, author of Speak and the new memoir, Shout. Yeah. 
Welcome back. I'm here with Lori Hals Anderson, author of Speak and the new memoir, Shout. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. So I have your book right here, uh, but I want to look back for a moment. In 1999, Speak came out, mm-hmm. and that was really groundbreaking because it's about Melinda and her story of being raped and her experience. And it took you a couple of decades to write about your own story, right? So what changed between then and now? Oh, the biggest thing that changed is I talked to about a million high school students Ooh. in those 20 years. Wow. Um, and I, so I gave countless presentations across the country because the kids would read, speak, and then I would come in as sort of a follow-up. Mm. And the questions that I got from those students and uh, empowered me to start sharing my own story. Speak is not my story. Mm-hmm. It's based on what happened to me. I was raped when I was 13. Um, but the reaction, my reaction was different. The circumstances were different. All those high school kids showed me that I... I I had an obligation to tell them the truth. Hmm. So I started to share my story. And then after 20 years of that, we got to the fall of 2017. Yes. Very important year, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And you had uh, some women in Hollywood elevating Tarana Burke's platform of the Me Too movement she started in 2006. And immediately the backlash Mm -hmm. to that, the increased visibility of this notion that that there there are countless survivors of sexual violence out there, mm-hmm. and that the shame should not be on those survivors, and that it's time for us to talk about it. So I got really angry, and that's yeah. why I wrote that book. I mean, anger can be such a productive Absolutely. emotion. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that you mentioned is that really we're all working through the shame of this particular issue, and I feel like we've been so socialized to blame ourselves and really carry hold on to that guilt for so long. I mean, was that a piece of processing what had happened to you, you know, over the two decades? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and I think that I could not have written this book when I was younger. Hmm. I needed to get to the point in my life where I'm a woman of a certain age filled with rage. Mm. And that's a powerful, powerful place to be in. It's very comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote this in verse. I did. Um, was that cathartic? Was that part of articulating that rage? It was. It's actually how the book came to me. I was in New York. Um, I was in New York for Comic-Con, and I was listening to a podcast about the, the backlash, women not being believed, survivors not being believed. And um, I've written poetry my whole life. And my as I'm walking up 11th Avenue, that's lines of poetry started to drop in my head mm. from all the stories that I know. And so that was, a poem has to be a punch in the gut or a hug. Hmm. And that's what the book is. Ooh. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, people have also disclosed their own stories mm-hmm. to you over the years. You mentioned you've spoken to, you know, so many uh, teenagers. Um, what is it like holding on to those stories and, you know, being that person that people almost have a confessional kind of nature to telling their story to? It's a real gift. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a gift when, when somebody feels connected to you enough to disclose what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a lot of uh, tears dry on my cardigan's shoulder. Um, I cry, too, a lot. Yeah. But it's also very uh, strengthening. It's a, it's a privilege. Yeah, I could definitely see, yeah. you know, uh, just for people to feel so comfortable yeah. with disclosing that kind of information. Um, one, one of the poems I was really struck by was the poem Collective yeah. in here, um, just because it points to, uh, you know, the young men who are also grappling with this issue themselves, the idea that this is, you know, a, a larger cultural question of unpacking uh, so many norms right. uh, around rape culture. Um, you also have six grandsons in particular, right? <laughs> um, so how do you think that we should be talking about this issue with boys and men in particular? 
Well, we need to talk to everybody about this issue. This, I, I would be willing to believe that every single family in America has been touched by sexual violence. This is a question of, of power and the abuse of power. Um, and it's the patriarchy writ large, right? And boys are hungry for these conversations. Mm. That's what that, that, that poem is about. And what too many boys have is, first of all, they're learning uh, about what sex is from watching porn mm. on their phones. Usually when they're 11 or 12 is when they're beginning. And they're watching a lot of non-consensual sex acts acted out. Uh, I was in New Jersey a few months ago, and I was talking about just the concept of talk before touch. Mm. The, the concept that before you have sex with somebody, you need to give your consent, you need to get consent. That has to be ongoing, enthusiastic, you know, positive, uh, not just no or the absence of no. And this 11th grade boy raised his hand and he said, but in porn, nobody ever talks about that. We had a conversation about that. It was actually a, a movie, <laughs> you know, and a script. But our boys are hungry for this information. Mm. And until adults can step up to the plate with courage and openness and tell them the truth about our bodies and about what sex is supposed yeah. to look like, we're going to fail everybody. Mm. Not just our, our the potential victims or potential. Everybody gets hurt by this. Well, you mentioned adults stepping up to the plate. <laughs> what do you think older generations can learn from Generation Z? Oh my gosh, they're the <laughs> best so much that um, that there is no shame in, in having questions and that you when you want to know something, you you figure out how to how to find it. And also I see in Generation Z this compassion, hmm. this compassion and respect that I haven't seen in the culture before. It gives me a lot of hope. Hmm. Well, speaking of hope and looking forward, uh, you know, you said that you wrote this uh, because and part of the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, where do you hope that Me Too goes next? There's a couple places we have to go. Uh, one is uh, as long as we are supporting survivors and then trying to prevent another generation uh, of young people from being hurt, hmm. right? Those are simultaneous. The other thing I'd like to see us start talking about is what does it look like when we allow somebody who is hurt uh, someone sexually to be honest about that too. There has to yeah. be some way. Now, obviously, for for there, there are some crimes that that you need to go to jail. You need to be tried, and you, you have to. There's a punishment, but then there's that also that gray area. And I know a lot of men are afraid to talk about what they've done. I've had some private conversations mm. with the guys who go, "Oh, that was not cool. I shouldn't have done that." But we need to figure out what does that space look like. What do those conversations sound like? Um, and that has to be driven by the survivors. Mm. Everyone gets to choose for themselves. Mm. Given that you are writing uh, and talking about these topics so frequently, what do you do to find joy? I mean, do you ever need to take a little time away for yourself? Um, it's it's actually hanging out with with, with people who care about these things. It's yeah. very joyful. Yeah. Um, I, so, you know, you, I started as a victim at 13 and didn't deal with that well for a long time. 23 years of silence in my case, until finally I went to a therapist. And then I transitioned into a survivor. Hmm. And because of my ability um, uh, to, to listen to a lot of kids and to hang out with people who care about these things, I'm not just a survivor anymore. Now I'm thriving. Mm. And that's a good way to walk in the world. Yeah, I love that uh, that evolution yes. taking us there. Well, listen, thank you so much for uh, joining me. This has been really fun. I love books. Wonderful. I, we got to talk again at some yeah, point. Yeah, so. absolutely. You yeah. got it. And uh, Shout is available wherever books are sold, and more resources are available at rain.org. Up next, we're going to be responding to more of your tweets.
And welcome back. This is our favorite part of the show where we get to hear from you and what you've been saying while we've been sitting up here thinking about you guys. Indeed. <laughs> and Softy38 tweeted this about Nosferatu. The Nosferatu book was incredible and Charlie still haunts my nightmares. Can't wait to see the show. I gotta tell you in my research, I mm-hmm. like watched every single thing out there. Um, this is the Charlie Manx character who was played by Zachary Quinto mm-hmm. and like, I thought it was pretty creepy. I'm That's, probably gonna check out the show. Yeah, I, did I hear that the vampires race Rolls Royces? Um, yes, the vampire. That's amazing. The, the vampire as character drives a Rolls Royce. Opulence. So, you know, I love there you go. It. There you go. <laughs> Rachel Hey Girlfield tweeted, "I use Lyft more anyway because it treats workers better." To be honest, same. You know, yeah. earlier I was acting like I use Uber. I, I stopped doing that a bit ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, like Uber has been embroiled in many controversies. So try to try yeah. to do right by yes. these companies. Conscious you know, ride can. sharing. You there know, you go. At every level, take care of your driver. Think about the companies pushing them out. There you go. Before we go, we have a new lower third T-shirt poll. Vote for new hosts. Who dis? Popsicles have to have a stick, Alex. Drag me. And welcome to the dystopia. <laughs> oh my God. Let me I live. Hope Let popsicles me live. need a stick. Alex wins because I live <laughs> every day. Every day. Fair, fair. All right. Well, thank you so much to our guests Paul McLeod, Joseph Cox, Ashley Cummings, Lori Hulse Anderson, and Kel Mitchell. We'll be right back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. 